And I think the goal is to really try to listen with teams that are talking to us. The goal is to really try to listen, to hear about their perspective about a certain issue or concern. So we're learning to listen and listening to learn, as one of our colleagues says, which I like. Um, and, you know, it sounds very basic, but so often as parents, we're so eager to problem solve, we instinctually we tend to jump in. Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at Brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? The members of the ADHD Essentials Facebook community are connecting with each other regularly, posting useful resources, and checking in with each other for help and support. Go to facebook.com groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up, or check out the link in the show notes. Our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired and Hacking Your ADHD, are both phenomenal resources to help you understand the disorder. In ADHD Rewired, Eric Tivers shares amazing interviews with ADHD experts and ADHD adults. And in Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb provides practical, actionable tips to help you better manage your ADHD. And don't forget to join the three of us for a live Q&A on Tuesday, July 14th, That is this coming Tuesday. It'll take place at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to ADHDrewired.com slash events to register. And finally, a big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting editing this episode. I greatly appreciate his help. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Juliana Chen and Ty Katzenstein. Juliana is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Mass General Hospital and Newton Wellesley Hospital in Massachusetts. She's also a part-time clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School. Ty is a clinical psychologist, also based in Newton Wellesley Hospital, and she's the former director of certification at Think Kids at Massachusetts General Hospital. Together, they both serve as co-directors of the Resilience Project Parents Program. It's an innovative community outreach program based out of Newton Wellesley Hospital. In today's episode, Juliana, Ty, and I discuss ways to develop the skill of resilience, how to ask our kids better questions, the importance of unconditional love, the challenges of checking in, and parental self-care. All right, let's get rolling. So my name is Ty Katzenstein. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a private practice in Newton Highlands, which is in the Western suburbs um, outside of Boston. And I have the great fortune to co-direct the parents program with Juliana at Newton Wellesley Hospital in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, where we are part of the Resilience Project. The parents program, in, in my estimation, is a really unique program because we are um, philanthropically funded to support parents of kids and teens in our clinic. We also are able to go out into our surrounding areas and do parent workshops, give talks. Um, And basically, we are in the roles of being able to support the emotional wellness, help parents support the emotional wellness of their kids. 
Juliana, do you want to say anything else? Yeah, I'd be happy to. My name is Juliana Chen, and I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And like Ty, work at Newton Wellesley and co-direct the Parents Program as part of the Resilience Project. I also have a small private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and work at Massachusetts General Hospital, but have the great, great fortune, as Ty said, of co-directing this program with her, which we really love. And working with parents is really near and dear to both of our hearts. So really appreciate this opportunity, Brendan, to join you this morning to reach more parents out there. Yeah. And, and thank you for coming on because I, I stumbled across a webinar the two of you were putting on, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks ago at this point, that was on parenting during COVID-19. And I had like a hundred things happening that morning. And I was like, if I can just stick my head in a little bit and let them know I exist and that I want to interview them. Um, so I, and I managed to pull it off and get you on, which is good. You were very persistent <laughs> and we were so happy to make the connection. <laughs> so I think where I'd like to start the interview is on resilience because it's something that we talk about a lot and we kind of hear in the general layman media, but I don't know that it ever gets very well explained. Sort of in a nutshell, what do you mean when you say resilience? Yeah, so generally what we mean, and you're right, you can't really open a newspaper. You can't, I mean, it's like the buzzword. Everybody is talking about resilience. And in general, what we talk about with our parents is just the basic concept is resilience basically is the capacity to adapt. And I think the important, one of the big points we like to make about resilience, oftentimes people have the misconception that either like either kids have resilience or they don't, or, you know, parents have resilience or they don't. And one of the big things we want folks to understand, especially parents, is that resilience is a skill that can be built like a muscle over micro interactions day to day. You know, now more than ever, it's something we can help our kids build to help manage through what we're going through now, also for the rest of their lives. It's also something we can practice and build. Something that Ty and I also love to talk with parents about is this idea, not only that resilience is a skill that can be strengthened in kids and teens and parents play wonderfully a critical role in this, but that parent resilience is something that we can cultivate and strengthen over time. And I know you know this very well, Brendan, yourself, and with your work, probably with so many people on this podcast, I'm sure this has come up before, but parent self-care is so important through this process. And Ty mentioned this, but especially now. So during times of adversity, you know, we want that resilience muscle more than ever. So if resilience is a skill that can be built, how do we build it? That's a great question, Brendan. We're going to tell you now the three things that people can do <laughs> and in, in just a few and just in just a few days, you in a few minutes, you too can be resilient and have that resilient muscle. I joke. Um, Ty, where should we begin? How does how does one build the resilient muscle? You can start and I'll add on. Well, you know, Ty and I come from the you know we're both clinicians, but we come from the perspective of being. Um, like family clinicians of working with parents. So we always think about resilience so people can do it for themselves individually. We think about resilience in the context of family and we think about resilience in the context of parenting. So just to say that that's, that's kind of like our perspective and approach. Resilience can be built. This is the wonderful thing. It can be built in a million different ways and in infinite ways. And it's those micro interactions day to day. So there are those big things and little things that parents can do. Lots of people have written about the building blocks of resilience. But some of the common building blocks we think about are things like competence and confidence, compassion, connection, communication. And so Ty and I think a lot about kind of building those fundamental building blocks. A lot of it, I think, starts with first and foremost, the parent-child, parent-teen relationship. I think that's one of the most important building blocks. 
and then also um, the relationship, so that connection, but then also in the communication, how parents talk with their kids, how parents talk with their teens, and how they're able to make space for kids and teens to talk back with them. And we can go into deeper on any of those, but there's so many other pieces. Ty, do you want to do you want to talk about some other big ones? Yeah, I think resilience, I'm thinking now more along the lines of parent resilience. I think right now parent resilience is also um, paying a lot of attention and true attention to self-care, helping our kids learn how to cope by modeling, but also sort of explicitly knowing which questions to ask to help them learn how to manage, you know, big feelings, hard feelings, difficult things that happen. So a lot of day-to-day kind of skill building. So what are some of the best questions to ask? How do we know what those questions are? Personally, I know you never want to ask a question beginning with the word why, right? Because it puts the person on the receiving end of that question in a defensive stance and, and you're going to get more resistance and, and sort of defensiveness out of them. But if you ask the question starting with how or what, you're going to get less resistance because they're not as defensive. Is there anything like broadly based that is a useful question or frame of question for parents to be using? Yeah, no, I think it's such an important question because of course, engaging teens, I mean, I'm focusing specifically on teens, but I think it's also true for certain tweens. Engaging teens in communication is obviously so much more complicated than, you know, very few teens are pulling up a chair to have in-depth conversations. We often talk with parents about how you engage, like how you start conversations. And we often will role play with parents about what it looks like to use a lot of empathy and a lot of reassurance and sort of to displace things, externalize things so that kids aren't feeling, so that we maximize our chances of kids engaging, teens engaging in conversation. So I think always entering around something very specific um, is better than opening around something more general. And I think the goal is to really try to listen. With teens that are talking to us, the goal is to really try to listen, to hear about their perspective about a certain issue or concern. So we're learning to listen and listening to learn, as one of our colleagues says, which I like. Um, And, you know, it sounds very basic, but so often as parents, we're so eager to problem solve, instinctually we tend to jump in. Um, And we put a lot of weight in our workshop series on really learning how to hold back and really listen and asking the kinds of questions in a specific way to get kids and teens talking. As you're talking, Ty, and I'm thinking, Brendan, about your first question, which really is such a good one. It's the money question, right? Like, what's the what's the right question we could we could ask our parents or, or tell parents to ask kids? I, I wish there was just a one question, but unfortunately, I think there isn't. And I think um, the answer is really, as Ty was saying, it's really more in the listening. So, really, that our kids and teens are communicating to us every day, all the time, in big and small ways. And it's really just being open to, to paying attention to what they're telling to us, either through their words or their, their behavior, or their actions. And when they are talking with us, really being open to hearing what they're going to share. It's really just more the, the listening. So something we talk with parents a lot about, it's a mnemonic that one of our colleagues developed, and it's something we talk with parents a ton about in our clinic and in our workshops. The four C's of communication, calm, curious, compassionate, and concerned. And it's, again, a little bit of rubric to help us to remember. And it's really in that order. And so first and foremost, you want to start off when you're calm. A lot of conversations, and maybe more so now these days, more than ever, emotions are high, people are stressed. Sometimes when parents are starting conversations with kids, completely understandably, it's over a concern or a worry or something we're upset about. So emotions are high. And you can imagine right out of the gate, 
the likelihood of that conversation going well is not super high because emotions are high, people get defensive. So first and foremost, we, you know, we remind parents to be calm when they're starting conversations with their kids. Yeah, I just want to say that, again, this sounds like something so fundamental. We all know in theory that, of course, it makes sense. And it's so easy to not do because we reflexively engage. Um, so just to underscore, and the reason why we want to engage when we're calm is we want to sort of take advantage of that cycle of co-regulation. So the calmer we are when we engage, the calmer our teens will be, hopefully. And the calmer they are, the calmer we'll stay. So that's sort of the rationale behind why we want to engage when we're calm. It just helps things go better, wouldn't you say, Ty, on both ends? It yes. just helps things to go better. Curious and compassionate kind of come next. And the curious piece is this idea of listening. So the listen to learn, learn to listen. We always say if there was a bumper sticker for this one, it would be talk less, listen more. Because I think a lot of parents also jump in and want to do a lot of talking. So really just like listen, listen, listen to whatever your kid might be telling you and being mindful not to make assumptions or, or not to jump to problem solving too quickly. The compassion is, perhaps goes without saying, but us wanting to really be open-hearted and loving and compassionate to whatever our child might be telling us. So I think something that's come up a little bit during this current pandemic is perhaps frustrations or disappointments around things or kids being upset about things that parents maybe don't fully understand or might maybe seem trivial when we're in a global pandemic. But to recognize that, you know, those kids' feelings, whatever they're feeling, whatever it is, even if it may seem trivial, something on Snapchat, a fight with a friend, or missing a certain activity, is actually maybe not so trivial. And that the feelings are real, so to kind of validate those feelings. I think the idea with compassion is that it matters very much, sort of how we're regarding our teen or our tween, in terms of the space from which we approach them. You know, if in my head I'm thinking my teen or tween is deliberately trying to push my button with something, I may have less patience. I may um, make certain assumptions that I wouldn't otherwise make. So we talk about really trying to occupy this space of unconditional love, really trying to occupy the space of um, my teen is having a hard time, my teen isn't giving me a hard time, so that we can approach our teen in a way or our tweens in ways that maximize the chance of um, having an effective collaborative communication. Or kids. Yes, kids, tweens, teens. Ty said tween or teen because um, we run a, a parent workshop for parents of teens. And so we're often talking with parents of teens. So we do a lot of work with parents of kids too. And the, that little mantra, we like Brendan because I think it can help parents sometimes. And we're really upset or feeling frustrated. It's a reminder and it can change you know, how we approach, approach our children. The mantra that my kid is having a hard time, they're not giving me a hard time. That's close to how I tend to look at stuff. My perspective is, regardless of how hard this is for me, it is harder for the person who is actually experiencing the thing that is hard. Where I really started to embody that most was, my wife gets chronic migraines. And for a while there, she was getting like 20 a month, like just constant, constant migraines. And not always debilitating, but always painful, always causing her to be a little bit short. We've since got that under control, which is great. I kept having to remind myself, like, it is really hard that I'm kind of being a single dad right now because my wife is like laid up on the, in the bed that time. Or it's really hard that my wife is just cranky most of the time. But it's worse to be the person with the migraine. Like, it's harder for her regardless of how hard it is for me. And that expanded into everything else in terms of parenting and all that stuff too. So I, I love that man mantra. My guess is, Brennan, thank you for sharing that. My guess is, too, it probably in smaller, maybe in dramatic ways 
shifted the way you responded to your poor wife having a migraine right. or shifted the way you responded to having to take on extra parenting duties. And I think the same thing can happen with parent kids, parent teens. It shifts our reaction. It shifts our response. It allows us to bring greater empathy. And we'll sometimes talk with parents about how I think parents of little, little kids sometimes more naturally can remember this. Like when your toddler's having a tantrum, I think most parents of toddlers can kind of know, oh, are they hungry? Are they tired? What is it that's causing this? And it, it, it might hopefully feel less personal. But as kids grow, sometimes those meltdowns can start to feel more personal, particularly for teens or young adult kids. But remembering that everyone has something that's going on for them, right? And um, we, the goal is that we want to try to slow it down and bring the temperature down, especially now. Your fourth C is concern. Yeah, that's the big one. So what's that one? It's basically that's the chance that we have as um, the parents to sort of communicate what our perspective or what our worries, concerns are. And I think what's important to notice is that it comes after calm, curious, compassion. It's the fourth C. And usually, typically, parents lead with that, which makes total sense because we're sort of natural born problem solvers and we want to fix things. But if we lead with that, oftentimes teens, kids, tweens tend to shut down. So it's hard. I mean, in some senses, it's the easiest, most familiar C. But what's hard about it is to hold back and wait to introduce that until after we've done the other C's. Can I add a fifth C? Yeah, let's hear it. Please, we love C's. I think this is critical, and I talk about it with my, especially my parent groups, but even with my one-on-one clients, if this comes up on occasion. And that's context. I think it becomes your first C, honestly, because the context in which that I engage in this conversation that is causing me to ask questions is critical to the success of the conversation. If my kid is flying off the handle because I asked them to stop playing Minecraft, and I decide that's when I'm going to have this conversation about how I'm concerned that they're playing too many video games, it's not going to work because the kid is already dysregulated. And even if I calm them down, they're still like an inch from dysregulated. We're not going to get anywhere. We have to have that conversation in a different context, away from video games, away from that acute conflict, so that the kid can bring more executive functioning and logical skills to the table when we discuss the topic. And also a a couple of other contexts that I find useful, driving or taking a walk. When we're both moving in the same direction and we're not squared off on each other, we're kind of parallel, it's easier for kids to go into areas of conversation that they might not otherwise go into. And this is also true for just spouses and adults talking to adults. Heading in the same direction is sort of symbolically moving towards the same goal, and it helps us reframe the conversation a little bit. And then the other one that I like to talk to parents about is bedtime and how kids in general, but especially ADHD kids, a lot of the times the stuff they tell you at bedtime, it's because you're hitting this sweet spot of all of the willpower that they've been using to resist paying attention to the thing that's really bothering them is finally worn away enough that they can't avoid talking about the thing that's bothering them. But they're still sometimes able to have an emotionally balanced conversation around that thing. I know parents sometimes feel like, my kid just keeps bringing up these dramatic stuff right before bedtime because they don't want to go to bed. And I push back on that and I'm like, it might be that they're just tired enough to not keep that secret anymore about that thing that's bothering them. So have that conversation and see where it goes. And that that's 
kind of where my head is going when I say context is those kinds of elements. I love that fifth C, Brendan. We might steal it. Thank you. Please do. <laughs> we actually, we do always talk with parents about, we don't use the word context, but we definitely are saying to them, you know, be strategic, right? Pick your moment. You know yourself, you know your kid. When is a more likely time for conversations to go well? And to add on to your bedtime piece, um, I also sometimes wonder is, is that bedtime time, that magic hour for many, many families, not blaming anyone, but it's kind of one of the quieter times of day. So is it actually kind of one of the times where, where kind of the busyness of life, even within the pandemic, home life is, I think, extra busy now, but is it one of those few moments in the day where there's relative calm or quiet or for families with multiple kids? Is it one of those rare moments where a child or teen has their parent one-on-one? for even just a few moments. And might that also be another reason? And it's more intimate. It's more safe. Yeah. Just because it's quiet and calmer. This reminds me, Brendan, because your first question, which was such a good one about kind of what are the right questions to ask. And Ty and I started talking about the four C's, which we really believe in. And, and we know a lot of parents have found to be really helpful. I think it's a nice rubric for parents and teens, parents and kids, parent to parent, like you said, Brendan. Oftentimes I think that can be be especially useful when you're when there's like a problem area or your kid is coming to you for something but your first question was what can we ask our kids mm-hmm. and i wanted to mention too that we really really try and i really want to encourage parents to check in with their kids in general but especially now and to even ask the explicit questions about how do they feel like things are going what parts do they miss what parts are, you know feel extra hard or extra easy you almost sometimes don't realize how much time can go by. And for some parents that, you know, they might be surprised if they think back to when was the last time they really did a, a check-in. Um, and also some parents maybe haven't yet been able to, to do a check-in about how things are going under the pandemic, you know, within the household, you know, like kind of how is this new normal feeling to everyone? And checking in is hard because it requires, I mean, hard in the sense that it requires, you know, having some emotional bandwidth. And right now, as we know, parents are in so many different roles, doing so many different things that um, that's not so automatic, it's not so obvious. So I think to really be very deliberate and aware um, so that we are checking in both with our kids, teens, tweens, and with ourselves too. And I know as a parent myself, one of the challenges I'm finding around checking in, right? And I'm a guy who checks in, like that's part of my jam as a parent. But one of the things that I find difficult about it is if I only check in when stuff is going off the handle, then that's not good. Because when it's going off the handle, I kind of already know. So I don't need to check in, right? Like I, okay, things aren't going that great. And I might check in about why things aren't going that great, but that's not really the broad-based perspective. But if things are calm and we're on an even keel and I check in, am I gonna throw things off the handle by checking in? And that's, that's the emotional bandwidth that you're mentioning, Kai. But there's also a level of like, I have no idea what my kid's emotional bandwidth is at. And the ADHD side of me is likely to do a check-in without first asking my wife about her emotional bandwidth. Like I might forget to do that because I'm just trying to get this done, right? I'm just like, I should check in. I haven't checked in with everybody in like a week and a half. I should just do a check-in. If I'm going to do a check-in, it's probably a good plan for me to check in with my wife in advance to see how she's doing. Does she have the bandwidth for this conversation? and then do or not do the check-in accordingly, right? Like either we don't do the check-in or I'm the only one who does the check-in while my wife walks the dog or something so she's not around for it. 
But even that becomes tricky because I shouldn't be the only parent doing the check-in. My wife should be there as well. So those are sort of other factors to pay attention to with the check-in. And it's part of what makes it complicated. But also recognizing, I think sometimes check-ins can be something so small. You know, like sometimes when we're talking with parents but encouraging them to talk with their kids or teens, I think they imagine a long, heartfelt, you know, lengthy discussion back and forth. And if that happens, that's wonderful. And if your kid is the kind of kid or teen who'll open up to you and talk at length, that's great. Check-ins can also happen like like drive-by in the house, right? It can be even in the corridor or, Ty, I remember you gave with the example once of kind of a quick check-in and just a squeeze on the shoulder of your daughter. I mean, that's like check-ins come in all shapes and sizes and they don't need to necessarily be long conversations. And I think there's something extra valuable about them incurring, not just in times of worry, um, because I think particularly for some kids who might be quieter or more prone to defensiveness, they start to associate check-ins with being in trouble or when they've done something bad or wrong. But we would love for the check-ins to kind of, to not be about that, right? We don't want that association or link. Just, I guess I'll make a plug, as you were saying, for the nonverbal check-ins and and to know, you know, think about your your kid, your teen, your tween, sort of what is their preferred modality of checking in? Do they, you know, do they feel most comfortable checking in while doing something? I mean, I think to just really pay attention to the kids you've got and to the the channel of communication that feels most familiar and effective for them to try to use it. I like, I like this distinction, Juliana, that you're drawing that check-ins, you know, can sometimes be lengthy conversations, but actually can happen very briefly involving no conversations at all, just nonverbal communication. Yeah. That's important because obviously I was thinking of the the larger scale check-in, right? Because to me, those small check-ins, I do those all the time and I don't even necessarily think of them as check-ins, right? I'm just sort of taking a meter reading and then moving on. So thank you for that reframe. Oh, no, you're welcome. But Brennan, your idea of like the broader check-in, we want to put a plug in on our end for especially now, why those broader check-ins, those deeper check-ins, I think are extra important. You know, we'll sometimes use the metaphor, perhaps a little bit silly, but about families, each family in their own unit kind of being in the same boat, you know, like it or not, they're in this boat together. No one's leaving for a little while. And to, to really talk as a family about how people feel like the family system, how things are working at home you know, because everything's different. Schedules are different. Routines are different. People are occupying the same space. How do the kids and teens and parents in the household feel like it's going? Are there ideas on how things could be um, working differently? And on the topic of resilience, I think helping kids to feel like they have a say, helping kids to have a place to express their feelings through all of this, all of this is hugely, hugely protective. And helping kids to to be more resilient and to to make sense of what's happening for them because it's very confusing for them as it is for us. If I can shift gears a little bit, I'm wondering about what you're seeing with the families that you work with. What are some of the responses or the challenges that they're navigating with regard to COVID-19? Are you finding any patterns or anything like that? Or is it just sort of a free-for-all? I feel like it's a a both and. I think in my experience, you know, the responses have been as varied as the number of families and parents I've been seeing. And it also seems to be the case that, you know, the initial couple weeks looked sort of in general looked a certain way. Um, I think there was sort of an adjustment period and then people were sort of finding their new normal. Um, And then I think more recently I've, I've, Julian, I'll be curious to hear what you, what your experience has been, but I've definitely been hearing much more anxiety on the part of parents and kids and families in in general. Um, So I think that um, especially as 
you know, summer approaches and even thinking ahead to next year, I think, and as the economic impact is really hitting families in different ways, I'm definitely aware that there's just higher levels of anxiety, worry, and stress and overwhelm. I think that's definitely true. And it's kind of shifted the longer this goes. People's areas of worries have shifted. I think early on, there was a lot very of COVID-19 specific worry and school and online learning worry. And then I think that kind of shifted a bit to school, sleep, screen time, socialization. I mean, maybe these are the S's. We could come up with some mnemonic here. Uh, motivation, <laughs> I think, has been a big one. And I think more recently, we've been hearing a lot more about transitions and disappointments and kind of disappointments and uncertainty about the future. We've also been hearing, I think, some worry about regression. You know, like our kids are teens losing skill, either losing skills they once had, or are they going to lose skills that they were in process of developing? And what does this mean for their longer term development? I think that's a, a worry that comes up a lot. That's an especially strong worry for families with kids who have learning disabilities. That gap gets bigger the longer this drags on. And it's sort of, it's something that I kind of am in conflict with a little bit, that specific worry about regression and, and falling behind and that kind of stuff. Because on the one hand, the whole planet is in this position, right? So everybody is falling behind and regressing. So there's that, right? So in, And I kind of find some comfort in that a little bit because falling behind is, as, a, as an idea, not regression, not so much, but a lot of parents talk to me talk about falling behind. And the idea of falling behind is in comparison to someone else, to the norm, right? And, and the norm is itself regressing. The norm for 2020 is falling behind the norm for 2019, I guess, but that's not the same because of the norm is just different and it's still the norm. But with regression and with specifically kids who are living in poverty, kids who are with learning disabilities, any disadvantage that you have is only going to exacerbate the gap that exists between you and, I don't know, the, the millionaire's kid who doesn't have a learning disability. And so it's simultaneously something that I'm like, oh man, that's a big worry. And I'm also like, but everybody is falling behind. So I don't, I, I'm super torn on that one. And I'm, I don't really know where I'm going with this particular comment. You're giving voice, Brendan, I think, to something that Ty and I are acutely aware of and families around this country, around the world are acutely aware of too. I mean, I think it's like most, a lot of things in life, right? The both ands, like it's, it's all true. I think we also try to remind parents too of exactly what you just said. There's this bigger picture, right? That everyone is struggling, everyone's regressed, this idea of falling behind, everyone's behind. I think that's true. And I think you're right. There's a bigger worry for parents of kids the kids you mentioned, and also, you know, from our perspective, kids with mental health issues, right? learning disabilities, also mental health issues, of how that can be extra hard. I don't think there's any way to talk about this without, our intention is not to put too rosy a spin, but some reminders, I think, as you mentioned, this is global, so it's happening everywhere. The fact that kids and teens naturally have the capacity for resilience, people do, and that development is happening, right? I mean, because school ends doesn't mean learning doesn't end too. Um, there are lots of ways to learn and grow and development's happening no matter what. And development by nature is, is somewhat up and down. And so to take a little bit of comfort in the fact that not only is this happening everywhere, 
but kids' bodies and brains are, they're kind of designed, you know, for kind of some up and down learning. We kind of learn in fits and starts. So again, I don't intend to put too rosy or positive a spin on it, but if we can ease parents' worries to some degree, we'll talk with them a lot about how they can expect some regression during this time. And that's normal, um, that some regression and that those kids can catch back up. Anything to add, Ty? I'm actually just still thinking about your dilemma, Brendan, um, a little bit about the, the sides of just, I'm just thinking about what you're saying about feeling both, both sides of it on the one hand, um, in terms of kids with special needs, but, and I guess, I mean, it's just something that I'm not, I don't have sorted out for myself yet. Um, but I do think there is a reality. We all are going through the same thing and it is just very true that it is having a disproportionate impact. I mean, I just think that is a reality that I don't quite, aside from sort of the structural societal challenges and remedies. I don't quite, you know, I, I, I guess this is the part of parent guidance when we're dealing with this crisis that feels challenging to me, that there are families socioeconomically, you know, families in poverty, families with um, certain kinds of stressors and trauma that are really bearing the brunt of all of this. And if I can pull the curtain way, way back, and I usually pull the curtain back a little bit anyway, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to just completely destroy the curtain right now. Go for it. For my listeners, right? Like, and this is completely intentional because it gets to resilience. This is a resilient, one of those micro moment resilience builder things, which is the reason why I asked that question and why I bring that up, right? Because Parents who are sitting back and can take that perspective of like, everybody's regressing. So my kid's not regressing that much. It's okay. Or everyone is falling behind. So my kid technically isn't falling behind. Parents who can find comfort in that are going to be able to be more resilient and move forward a little bit more. On the other side, parents who have not considered the fact that there's a bigger gap forming between folks in poverty, folks who have suffered trauma, kids with learning disabilities or emotional challenges, that gives one permission if their kid has an emotional challenge or, or a learning disability. It gives them permission for their kid to be struggling a little bit more. And maybe that makes the interactions easier. And that's a little resilience builder, right? Because like, oh, I'm, this is actually kind of supposed to happen. It's okay that this is happening. It's still really stressful for me, but now I don't have to add the extra bonus stress of what will they think, the mysterious they that we all worry about the judgment from, about my kid having trouble reading or, or whatever the case may be, right? Or not going to school five days a week virtually and only doing all of their work on Thursday and Friday or something. And also the parents who are not navigating those challenges and, and some of those parents listen to this podcast, maybe they're able to give a little more grace to the, to the folks in their circles who do have kids that are struggling more with this than someone else's kid, their kids might be. And that grace is going to help provide resilience to the people who are struggling more because maybe they can support a little bit better. That's all the stuff I was trying to do with that question was sort of sneak in some little resilience moments and a couple of hopeful ahas for the folks listening to this podcast. And, and admittedly, I spelled them out. So now it's maybe less of a powerful aha, but that's where resilience lives. Even just listening to this show is a tool for building your resilience because maybe it gets you out of your own head for a little while, but it also gives you new perspectives on things. I think that's exactly right, Brendan. I think I'm processing still all that you're saying because it's so much, right? This is, it's the nature of where we are. It's the, it's the pandemic, it's everything, it's family. So I don't know if this is exactly what you meant, but um, this whole dilemma that we keep talking about, it's like, how do you hold both ends? I think you're exactly right, as if I understood you correctly. It's a little bit all those micro moments and the things that we can do individually um, and what parents can do, and 
we, I mean, we believe in this. We know parents are a critical role in supporting kids' resilience. And I'd love to be able to talk a little bit about parent self-care if there's time. And I sometimes worry, like, I don't want parents to then feel extra burdened, like this is yet another thing that they have to do in the midst of a global pandemic. They have this great ability, I think, to scaffold their kids a ton right now, including kids with difficult challenges, social challenges, learning disabilities, mental health challenges, that it's both, right? They have this amazing ability and um, recognizing this, is, this, is, this can feel really big um, for most families. And I don't mean to be putting anything on parents with what by pulling back the curtain. This is why I typically don't pull the curtain back that far and say like, <laughs> this is what I might, I'm hoping might happen when I address this particular issue with the show. Because parents don't have to do anything. All that stuff I just talked about, you don't have to do any of that stuff. I'm just hoping that like as folks listen, they go, oh, huh. And that adds some tiny shift in their interaction with their kid or with their spouse or with their Aunt Gertrude that is a little bit more helpful, a little bit more forgiving, a little bit more kind, a little bit more graceful, I guess. We 150% believe in that message, Brendan, for sure. I mean, like pandemic or not, right? I mean, I think parenting is one of the hardest jobs in the world. It's cliche, but it's true. People say that for a reason. It is one of the hardest jobs in the world. I think it is extra hard now. And so I think every little thing, is it listening to this podcast or going for a walk, knowing that those aren't going to solve all these larger you know, societal challenges and challenges that so many families face across, across the world, but that those little micro moments also matter. And we, we really believe so firmly in parents prioritizing themselves and taking care of themselves. And that in doing so, that is also allowing them to bring their best foot forward for their kids. So kind of, it's, it's just like that cycle of co-regulation. There's, the cycle of self, there's also a cycle of self-care. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something, again, it's one of these things that everybody knows theoretically, all parents know theoretically, and it's so hard, especially now, to actually really put into practice. Um, and I think, again, it's self-care can happen in really small moments. It doesn't have to be long moments. It can be as simple as a you know, cup of coffee, cup of tea, looking out the window. It can be as simple as focusing on three deep belly breaths to try to regulate yourself physiologically, it can be as simple as finding one thing a day that you feel grateful for and kind of letting your brain steep in that thing to actually really, really um, hang out in a um, positive mental space for a little bit. I think it can, you know, be prioritizing connection with others. Um, We all know that um, having positive relationships is one of the most important variables in protecting physical and emotional health. I do think, again, not wanting to burden parents, but I think really recognizing the importance of self-care and for us as individuals and also for our families, uh, especially now is really, really important. Just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? First off, just to know that there is no one right way, period. Um, There never has been in terms of parenting, but especially now in this territory, this completely unknown, uncertain territory, there is no one right way to engage kids in academic learning. There is no one right way to come up with you know, proper screen time limits. I just think we really have to embody this idea of good enough parenting, that we are all trying to do our best. Um, and as Juliana was saying, I think the idea that resilience isn't a trait, 
that it's not that you're born resilient or not resilient, that it's a skill. It's something we can practice as parents and it's something we can help our kids practice. And finally, I think just as we were talking about with self-care, that it's not a luxury, it's, it's a critical. We want to look for opportunities, even if they're very brief, to really take care of ourselves as parents. And just to add on to Ty, I mean, we believe in these messages so firmly. Um, so yes, resilience is a skill, not a trait. Remember that for kids and ourselves. And on the parent self-care piece, we really want to really, really want to underscore this, that self-care hopefully is, should not be an option right now. And that self-care, even if it's just for a few minutes a day, and to really protect the basics of things that we all know in theory, but are really hard to put into practice. So getting a good night's sleep, having some regular bedtimes and waking times if we can, moving our body, getting outside, and really, really the connection really matters. This is not a time in a time of physical distancing. Please don't isolate yourselves and reach out to whoever is in your community to not worry alone whether it's a neighbor, a friend, a doctor, your student's teacher, but just not not to worry alone. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.